Hey friends, um, I, I was worshiping at another church to oversee a church plant, and it was their commissioning service, and that's why I was there uh, to help be a to help play a part in the worship, but more, most importantly, to uh, encourage my, my brother who um, I grew up, or I, I went to seminary with. And as I was worshiping there um, with all these strangers, I realized something. That I really miss the people of New Life Fremont. And maybe this place is becoming more and more like my home. So, you know, with that being said, I, I really miss you. I hope you're doing well. Um, it's good to see you all here. We've been going through the book of Mark uh, to help process through, uh, to help process to, through what does it mean leaving a mark? That all of us, we want to make an impact in the world somehow, whatever it means, whether it's through our jobs, whether it's through our relationships, we long to leave a mark. Yet this, uh, their caveat to that is also we long to leave a mark, that there's wounds that we have in our lives. And yet, no matter which angle you take here, is that God addresses both. And I really believe that as he uh, reveals himself through Jesus, we see what it really truly means to leave a mark through Christ. And so with that in mind, we turn to our passage here, Mark chapter 1, verse 20, 29 through 39. And if you're able, can you please stand as we read God's word together? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they took, uh, told him about, it, about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought, up, brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God is forever. Please be seated. How important are first impressions to you? How important are first impressions to you? Because a lot of us, when we go through first impressions, we want to make a good impression on someone, whether it's for an interview, whether it's for a person that we meet for the first time. We like to make good impressions for the most part. But also, we know that there's a factor where first impressions, they don't tell everything about us. But we still want to make a good first impression. Here, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he begins his ministry. It's still day one, so it's first day on the job. What kind of impact will he make? 
And yet, what will uh, people's first impressions of Jesus' ministry be like? These are all questions that are actually, I find, quite relevant to New Life Fremont. That as we process together replanting as a church, we too want to know how can we make the good first impression and what kind of impact can our church perhaps make? What does it take? See, in our passage today, we're going to find Jesus' purpose or what we like to consider a mission statement for why he has come. There's a purpose for why he has come. And this purpose will help guide us in the direction of New Life Fremont as a community, but also the direction and invitations for us personally. And there's three things I want us to consider in this passage. is first, the things that we overlook. Secondly, the things that need to be observed. And last of all, third, uh, opening, ourse- uh, opening ourselves up to God. These three things, overlook, observe, and open. Let's look at the first part here, overlook. After teaching one of the most amazing sermons that the disciples have ever heard and performing an exorcism, Jesus must have been famished. That's a lot of work that he put in. This is a high-intensity event that must have drained the emotional batteries of Jesus and his disciples. So they go somewhere, quiet, to recharge and probably have a meal together. In verse 29, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Pause. Simon and Andrew own property. They own a home. Not only that, in verse 30, you find that Simon has a mother-in-law, which means he is most likely married, and it's not far-fetched to think he probably also had kids. Here is a man, we're talking about Simon Peter, who has been directly called by Jesus, follow me. And it's a radical call, a radical call that requires radical change. That's what we would think at least. So it would mean leaving behind this former life to do greater things. But that's not the case. (coughs) Peter uses his home as headquarters for Jesus' ministry. And this detail of the mother-in-law is probably mentioned because Peter wanted to be hospitable and he knew his mother-in-law cooks up a good meal. Simon's former life is not forgotten. Rather, it's being repurposed here. And it goes to show us God is not wasteful, that he can and he will use anything in your past to serve his purpose. He even uses the sin in our former lives to testify to his goodness. God is not wasteful. You just never know. You just never know how or when God will use your experiences. Simon and Andrew, they tell Jesus that the mother-in-law is ill with a fever. And it's not clear uh, how severe this fever actually is or was. But what is clear is that she couldn't do anything at the moment. She can't cook up that meal. There's not even a clear request to heal their mother-in-law. If anything, (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if there was somewhat of an apologetic tone from Simon and Andrew that the mother-in-law can't whip up something right now. But it doesn't matter to Jesus. He grabs her by the hand as if she is this child who has fallen and can't get up. 
And she, he gently lifts her up, and the fever is gone. And look at the mother-in-law's reaction, verse 31. She began to serve them. She began to serve them. You know who else is recorded, recorded as with this description of serving Jesus? <laughs> at least in the book of Mark. Excuse my cough. The only other person that's described this way are the angels right after Jesus' baptism. And later in chapter 15, it says that a group of women ministered to him. But only Peter's mother-in-law here is specifically described serving the Lord. She's the only one. <laughs> this is not to say that this is not to say that she was the only one truly serving Jesus, but she gets this honorable mention. And most likely, she cooks up that good meal. Such a simple act, something that could have been overlooked, <laughs> yet is remembered as she served the Lord. Jesus took away her fever, but for you, he takes away her sin. Oh, thank you so much. What a gracious act. Oh. That's the thing. Perhaps instead of looking to, for great things out there to accomplish, what is truly great in the kingdom of God is to be faithful where you're at. You know, sometimes greatness, according to God, means changing diapers. Sometimes it means logging on to a Zoom call. Sometimes it means meeting up with a friend to just ask how you're doing. Sometimes it means doing the dishes without grumbling. To God, faithfulness, being fit, faithful where we're at is all that matters. Because where there is a willing servant heart, God will honor. He is not wasteful. He is not wasteful. These are the things that we tend to overlook, and yet God is calling us to observe. But he also calls us to observe what exactly he is doing. Which brings us to the second point, observe. By the end of the day, remember, Jesus' first day on the, on the job. Verse 33 says, The whole city was gathered together at Simon's doorstep. And verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Jesus went viral before it was even a thing. How do these people even know that he could actually heal their sickness? Because as far as we know, all he did was cast out a demon in public, but the healing, this happened in private. There must have been so much hype that the people were willing to believe anything. And notice, Jesus silences, silences the demons that he cast out, all because, as verse 34 put it, they knew him. The demons knew Jesus. The demons have more accurate theology than the people here. Yet they are not the ones being healed of their evil as fallen angels. You know what the difference is here? What the crucial difference is? A neediness before God. You can know so much but believe so little. I'm not saying that we shouldn't study the Bible or have good doctrine. I think those are all good things. All these things are crucial. But if we have a big head and a small heart, what good is that? It's like having all the knowledge to make all the delicious food, but to never have the appetite to actually savor what it is that you know. 
These people, they were desperate to believe that maybe, somehow, Jesus could heal. And the eyes of desperation, they are really no different than the eyes of hope. Notice the timing of when all the people decide to show up. Verse 32, that evening at sundown. That evening at sundown. Why would these people who are desperate to be healed come at such an inconvenient time? It's not like they had well-lit streets back then. It's hard to see. Uh, it's dangerous at night, at least for them. And, and how do they know Jesus could see their particular illness or sickness that they had? If you're hurting, why not find Jesus right away to alleviate the pain? But you know what's going on here? They were observing the Sabbath. The religious leaders at that time said that if you couldn't do, uh, that you could not do any work on the Sabbath day, even if you had to take a trip to the doctors, because if you did so, you will be condemned. You're ruined. So you better obey. Observe the Sabbath. Here's the thing here, guys. Everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Even if you don't belong to a particular religion. I remember talking to some elementary school uh, kids at some church event. And I asked them, you know, I, I was starting to make small talk with them. And I asked them things like, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they responded. Uh, one said, like, a news anchor. Another said, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And, you know, as the conversation went on, we talked about future life and whether they want to have a family or not. And I asked, you know, do you want, how big of a family do you want? You know what they said to me? They told me, we don't want kids. We don't want any kids. Elementary school kids, right? They said, we don't want kids when we grow up. I thought that's strange. Why not? And they said, they're too expensive. <laughs> I was thinking to my, do these kids pay taxes already? Are they, are they being audited? Or have they learned to observe the religion of their parents? Well, everyone's religious. Everyone. All you have to do is observe what you're afraid of being ruined by. If your kids don't excel in life, then you're ruined. Then parenting is your religion. If your career isn't at a certain point in this life, you haven't got the promotions, unless you get there, you're ruined. Work is a religion. If you don't have this kind of life with this kind of stuff, then you're ruined. Comfort's your religion. Everyone's religious. You just have to look at what are you observing? All forms of religion say, says unless you obey, unless you observe, unless you're good enough, you will be ruined. And yet God is the only one who starts by telling us you are ruined. You are dead in your sins. Yet you are so loved because of what Christ has done for you at the cross. And you don't have to be good enough for God because he's already good enough for you. This is not religion, guys. This is not religion. This is the gospel. It's healing. When the gospel is observed within the church, you know what it does? It turns us into mothers, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. A desire to begin to serve the Lord because we're grateful. 
Here's the thing, Peter's mother-in-law, she could have been self-conscious about her meal. What if it's too salty? What if it doesn't have enough umami in it? What if, if, what is the, if the meal is fitting for the palate of a Messiah? But out of all the things that matter for her, it was simply having a willing heart to serve the Lord. Here's where we can get hung up. You can start to think about all your inadequacies. You can think about, I'm not golly enough. I'm not good at talking to people. I'm not this. I'm not that. Well, you begin to turn a little salty. But the thing is, God can use anything. Even the things we consider useless. I especially need this reminder. Because I know I can have my moments too. Unless I'm insightful, people won't change. Unless I create these innovative, innovative ministries, God's not really going to move at a place like New Life Fremont. And yet, out of the blue, I received a text message from an old youth student who's in his young adult life stage. And from what I remember, he and I, uh, he, he was a, like one of the most skeptical youth students I've ever known. He always questioned everything I had to say about the Bible, about God. And sometimes he came off a little aggressive. A lot of times I didn't think I was making a connection at all with him. Yet in this text, he tells me that he's revisiting his faith. He thanks me for always entertaining all his questions and simply being patient with him. He thanked me for the bobas that I got for him. And the sheer fact is I just listened to him. That out of all the things God used, it wasn't my insight, it wasn't my theological training, none of those things. It's just the fact, it's, it's the thing that I least expected. Listening. When we observe the gospel, it leaves us open to what God is actually doing. It makes us less and less think less and less about ourselves, but absorb more and more about who God actually is and what He is doing. And the more we observe the gospel in our lives, it makes us open. Makes us open. Which brings us to the last point here. First day on the job, people are healed, demons are cast out, His fame spreads. What is Jesus' next move here as he has all this momentum going? Here's his next move, verse 35. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There he prayed. Sound like a good move? Here's what the disciples thought, verse 36. They found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Translation, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Why are you praying? In their minds, they're thinking, okay, we got all this momentum. Your healings are great. It's working fabulous. If you just do a couple more miracles, the world will be ours for the taking. Prayer is nice, but come on. What is that going to accomplish? What are you doing? And yet, perhaps, we miss the point of what prayer actually is. Prayer is not about what kind of, uh, it's not about our requests getting accomplished. 
maybe the focus is more on who is actually drawing near to us. I want you to consider something. That God has probably heard every single prayer known to the history of man. He's known the best prayers from the Puritans and the Reformers. He's heard the worst prayers. He's heard it all. Nothing that you bring up to God will surprise him. And yet the very fact that he still calls his people to pray means that he wants to hear you pray. That for some reason he wants to hear you. That he wants to draw near to you. Perhaps one of the most important times that happens on Sunday is 15 to 10 minutes before worship. Where back in that little kitchen there, a couple of us go out to pray, to intercede. Because when we pray, you know what's happening? We're opening ourselves to God. We're saying, God, we don't know everything, but you do. Your ways may seem strange, but you are God and not us. That moment that happens there, 15, 10 minutes, powerful. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. It's a good plan. But it's, uh, you know, what the disciples have in mind, it's a good plan. But is that really Jesus' purpose here? Look at what Jesus' purpose is. Here's the purpose statement. Verse 38. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. There you have it. His whole ministry revolves around preaching. Preaching. Surely there's got to be something other else, something more, just a little bit more possessed, Jesus. I mean, they spent $25 million on two Super Bowl commercials to share how Jesus gets us. I don't know how effective it was, but at least people are talking about it. There's got to be something more, Jesus. Maybe a testimony by Justin Bieber how he found Jesus again. Now that will be powerful. And believe me, I'd be the first to go. That would be powerful. But for some reason, Jesus says, it's the word of God that's sufficient. Preaching. As someone who does this every week, I find that surprising. According to the Bible, we are created from God's word, literally. We're creatures of his word. And at the end of the day, we are what we believe. And there's a troubling thing called the inner voice that we all have, reminding us that we are never enough, you don't have enough, and you will never be enough. There's guilt, there's regret, there's shame. It's what the inner voice tells us. There's this pastor, he was sharing about a tough season of his life where his daughter was going through severe depression. And you have to understand this girl, her context is that she was this bright uh, uh, person. She, she was, you know, she's always smiling. Uh, she, she, she was beautiful and, and she, she was so uh, popular amongst people. But then for some reason, she just fell into this spout of depression. And she got sick, physically and mentally. 
And so this dad who's a pastor, he did everything. And I mean everything. Went to all the counseling sessions, got the medical treatments, but none of it helped. And finally, one day, he simply said, he brings his daughter over, and they have a heart to heart. And he tells her this. Sweetie, you know what? I think I got a cure for your problems. Here's what you need to do. I want you to go, and I want you to go party as much as you can, get with as many guys as you can, do whatever you want. She goes, what? Keep in mind, he's a pastor. He says, yeah, just do that. And secondly, all this you know, drugs and alcohol, you know what, knock yourself out. Do all that you want to do to your heart desires. She goes, what? What's wrong with you, Dad? These are all the things that you told me not to do growing up. And Dad turns, at her, turns to her and looks at her and says, yeah, but what do you think is worse? To commit all these different things or to not believe in your own father's words to you. That you're loved. That you're careful. Just like that, it clicks. I believe we're all in our position here. And no matter what is being said, what is being said, there's this inner voice convicting us of our guilt, of our shame, of our regrets, and yet here is God preaching Letting us know, no, no, you may be ruined, but you are so loved. Jesus came to preach because he is rewarding us with his grace. In a world where everyone is trying to make good first impressions, what is our first impression before God? It's simply this, we are sinners. You know what the second impression is? It's not different. The third, the fourth, the fifth, all through our lives. Yet the word of the cross is that we are accepted and loved by God according to his mercy. And if you are open to the cross that speaks a better word, then perhaps the greatest impact you can make is that grace be the first impression to be to a world that desperately needs it. Pray with me. Uh, Father God, we thank you that in all our thinking about what it would be to be the most effective or impactful person for your kingdom, it's not really the things that we think of. It's not necessarily our gifts, our talents, our insight. It's simply the fact that we are people, creatures of the word, that we receive your grace. And because of that, Father, we learn, will we learn to be like Peter's mother-in-law, simply beginning to serve the Lord, where there is a willing heart you are willing to honor. Continue to shape the community of New Life Fremont to be more and more reflective of your heart towards this world that really needs it. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.